Good morning. Well, if I'm counting right, this is lesson 13. Jesus goes to the Gentiles, or does God ever like to lose an argument? From Mark chapter 7. Sometimes our uh, expectations surpass reality. This uh, last few weeks, one of my daughters has been in search of a particular kind of car. So we were looking for a Toyota Corolla. And let me assure you, I have seen many junkers. Some that went through the Battle of the Bulge and were beaten and pounded out, but the headlights or the taillights still didn't quite match the rest of the body. And we've seen it all. And uh, so one gets a little skeptical, pessimistic about such endeavors. But she uh, saw this particular ad in Arlington about an hour away in the heat. And uh, so we, uh, we make our way there. And this man assured us this car was immaculate. And uh, so we drive into this uh, place of, of business and he had told Jenny that the car would be parked in the shade of a tree. So we came in and parked, and here is this beautiful Corolla parked under the shade of this tree. And we're thinking, yes, this is it. This is the one. And we're looking at this car and sizing it up and thinking, whoo, we, we really made it this time. And Jenny says to me, why is all this stuff in the back seat? And then we look across the parking lot in the shade of another tree. And there is the Toyota Corolla. Pop the hood, and uh, there are wires. Where is Patrick this morning? There are wires clued together and, and, and under the hood. And you're saying, this does not bode well. The, uh, actually, the, the upholstery was peeled. It looked like a three-year-old child had been having fun peeling the upholstery off of the, the panels of the side of the car. Uh, it was a disaster. And, and then the trial ride, which was already academic. But start the car up, and we're heading out, and uh, the groans and the clunks from the steering were not encouraging. But when we tested that manual transmission, it sounded, Jim, sounded dry of oil to me. And Jenny just said, Dad, quick, turn around, get it back before it quits. <laughs> it wasn't a good day. Our expectations exceeded reality. And often they do. And that's why when we're dealing with marriage in pre-marriage counseling, you try to get people to really begin to recognize who that person is they're going to marry and that their expectations kind of get at least approximately close to reality. Here is a text where reality exceeds expectations. When you think about Jesus going to the Gentiles, and if I would say especially as you think as a disciple, as a Jewish disciple of our Lord Jesus, you think about their expectations for Gentile evangelism, they weren't high. But this text takes it vastly beyond what any of us might expect. It's a text that deals with two healings, or probably more accurately, a deliverance from demonic possession and the uh, healing of this man who is uh, deaf and dumb. But let's think about 
the uh, backdrop to this story because this is a part of a sequence of dots that we are seeking to connect. And let's go back to chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 30 through 44, which is then followed by Jesus walking on water. And you remember it is there that Jesus rebukes the disciples for failing to see the connection between the provision of bread and Jesus walking on the water. Jesus um, is also sought out by the crowds for him to uh, give a healing touch for people just to be able to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Then the Pharisees uh, come up with their great debate about the the horrible uh, condition of the disciples eating with ceremonially unwashed hands. And it is there that our Lord Jesus makes that incredibly profound and significant declaration, all foods are clean. So he, he sets aside one of the principal barriers of fellowship between Gentiles and Jews. And it should not surprise us then that when we come to our text uh, for today, Jesus goes to Gentile territory and begins a a Gentile uh, ministry, and he is in the area of Tyre and Sidon. Now, you might just take a look. I hope we've got this up on the screen. This is from the uh, ESV Study Bible, and fortunately they allow us to copy these things and, and, and put them up. At least I assume they do. But you'll see that Jesus goes from Galilee up north to Tyre and Sidon. What this doesn't do, and I decided not to add my artwork. It would have made theirs look so bad. But it really, Jesus is going to end up down in the lower right-hand corner in Decapolis. So it's sort of like what we've done sometimes on our trips when we go to Washington State. We go everywhere first, sometimes up to Canada and drive across Canada or over to Los Angeles and drive up. But you have to admit, going north is not the fastest way to get south, right? And there are those who would say this may have been a trip that encompassed about eight months. We don't really know. But the point is... Jesus' Gentile ministry is pretty significant in terms of space and time. And it reminds you a little bit of John. Remember where it says Jesus must needs pass through Samaria? Uh, That certainly uh, seems to be the case here. Now, if you look with me for a moment at at what Matthew has to bring to the table, so to speak, uh, look at the contributions we find from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew's text, depending on the translation, Matthew's text, and I think if you look at the way Matthew uses that word uh, typically, you'll find that it isn't just Jesus departing, it's Jesus withdrawing. And in Matthew's text, this is preceded by the fact that Jesus has just learned of the death of John the Baptist and, and the opposition and all of that. So Jesus is, in a sense, withdrawing In Mark's gospel, it's Jesus withdrawing after the opposition that's been raised by the Pharisees pertaining to the unclean hands. So Jesus is in one sense withdrawing from the Jews. In the other sense, he is making an entrance into Gentile territory. And I think at least Matthew gives us a clue to that. 
I love this one. Mark calls this woman a Syro-Phoenician woman, Syria, Phoenicia, and, and we get that feel. But Matthew just calls her a Canaanite. I just love that. She's a Canaanite. Folks, think in Jewish terms. What does that mean to be a Canaanite? You can't get lower than that, right? You can't get lower than a Canaanite. That's what this woman is. I say, like Jezebel's origin. Remember, Jezebel was the daughter of a Sidonian king. So in a sense, if you want to talk about her relatives, you might say, well, she's got some interesting folks in her background. She says, have mercy upon me. And then I guess the thing I would underscore is son of David. She is a Gentile, but she is appealing to the Lord Jesus as Messiah, as I understand it. Now, what's interesting about this is Peter's great confession is yet to come in Mark. All right, I got to tell you, I just love the way that Mark plays this out. It seems to me that a Gentile has the great confession before Peter does. I don't know, you can take it any way you want, but she's calling him the son of David. And she's a Canaanite, folks. She's calling upon the Jewish Messiah. Our Lord's silence is only in uh, Matthew. And Matthew and and Mark are the only two accounts of this. But uh, our Lord remains silent. Now, one of the things the commentaries have said, or some of them have said, that I think we need to keep in mind is, we have only words here. We can't see a YouTube version of this, but obviously the way in which you say something uh, colors what you say. Would you not agree? So when I say to my grandson, you skunk, he knows exactly what I mean. Now, if I said that to that used car salesman that told me it was immaculate, that's another story. He's a skunk too, but in a different way. So uh, you have to take the Lord's silence in the light of everything that we see from this text. But it's during that period of silence that we have this other element that is added, and that is our compassionate disciples. In this period of silence, the woman has fallen down before Jesus. She is pleading for mercy. And thanks to Matthew's account, where the disciples say, she comes after us. I take it that means she not only went into the house. Mark tells us it's a house. She not only went into the house and began her petition, but the silence of Jesus continues as he leaves the house. And she's crying out after the Lord Jesus, this same petition. And the disciples are fed up with it, and they have that one cure-all answer that starts back in the feeding of the 5,000. And that is, how do you deal with someone you don't like? Send them away. Send them away, Jesus, so they can find food. Send her away, because we're tired of her harassing us with her petition for mercy. Jesus says very clearly in Matthew's account, your faith is great. Now, it's clear by inference from Mark. Because you have said this, your petition is granted. But Matthew makes it clear, what you said is an expression of faith, and it is the faith of this woman that pleases our Lord Jesus so much. And then in verse 31, 
of Matthew's account, it's talking now about all these miracles that the Lord Jesus has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And it, and it says, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, folks, that's very significant in a sense because it really is reiterating what the woman herself has said. Not only are they glorifying God, our Lord Jesus Christ, they are glorifying the God of Israel. Gentiles glorifying the God of Israel. So this underscores this whole Gentile element, I think, that we find here. Mark's contributions uh, in verses 24 through 30 of Mark chapter 7. It says, Jesus went into a house. Now, that in and of itself is an interesting thing. When you compare it with Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, the centurion is appealing with, to Jesus, remember? That, that he would come and he would, uh, he would heal the servant. And, and, uh, and Jesus says, I'll come. They start on their way and the centurion says, wait, 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 you don't have to do this. You don't have to come into my house. And I think between the lines you would say, and be defiled. Gentile house. You don't have to come to my house and be defiled. I know something about authority as a centurion. As a centurion, I can speak and I have authority that will, you know, if I want to send a message to a guy 25 miles from here and tell him to do this or that, I have that authority. If you're God, you have the authority to heal by distance. You don't have to do this in person. But my point is, he had an understanding of this Jewish sense of defilement to be in a Gentile house. I take the fact that Mark is telling us he's in a house. Folks, it's got to be a Gentile house. And, and so he's crossed over one of those great, uh, I think, Jewish boundaries at that moment. Uh, Mark makes it clear in both accounts that Jesus is really trying not to attract a crowd and attract attention. So he goes into the house in part because it gets him out of the public eye. It doesn't work. In either case, takes the, the deaf mute out back sort of behind the barn and deals the, with his malady. Word gets out. But Mark wants to make a point of the fact that Jesus is not seeking publicity at this particular moment. So he tells us she is a Syrophoenician woman, um, which equals a Canaanite. And the, the statement, I'm not going to land on this one today. But I got to tell you, as I read through this text and I noticed what he says in Mark's account, he says, let the children be satisfied first. Here's as far as I'll go. And the 5,000 ate and were satisfied. And the 4,000 ate and were satisfied. Interesting, don't you think? So let's talk about that next week. Okay, that's what I do sometimes. Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, what do we learn from Mark's account? Is it not clear that Jesus is now ministering to Gentiles? And I have to tell you, in every single gospel, there are, there are clear 
dramatic clues that this is Jesus' intent and purpose. It's always clear in the Gospels that the Gentiles were intended to be, as it were, in the radar of our Lord Jesus and his ministry. You remember Luke chapter 4, when he says, you know, it isn't just the Jewish people that Elijah and Elisha ministered, that widow and that leper as well. Not popular words, but true. So that what we see is Jesus in the, in the flow of the argument of Mark is putting into practice. He is setting precedent for the principle he has declared in saying all foods are clean. Jesus is not content simply to make the statement. Now his actions follow through and this extended Gentile tour, folks, is underscoring dramatically Jesus means what he says. And he acts on what he says. All right, uh, I have to tell you, I've been talking about connecting the dots and you know that we're going to come back in 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 uh, Matthew or Mark chapter uh, uh, eight, and we're going to see the feeding of the four thousand, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and of Herod, and these poor disciples. They still can't get what bread is about. Here's the beauty: disciples don't get it. A Canaanite woman does. Isn't that something? She gets what bread is about. All they can think about is where's lunch. Well, we'll leave that for the time being. Children must first be satisfied, then the bread must be shared with others. Let me just take a moment to take a bypath meadow on that. I know what this text is saying in the context of Jews and Gentiles. If I were to look in the... Uh, Seminary, Dallas Seminary Directory. They have a geographical listing of where the students all go. If I looked under Dallas, Texas, I would see a very disproportionate number of names, including mine. Okay, guilty. <laughs> I'm amongst a bunch. Is it possible that our part of the world, in, in, in a biblical sense, has had enough bread to be satisfied and that now we're straining gnats and swallowing camels. Isn't it time hungry people got some crumbs? Uh, to me, that's not a really strong stretch. Isn't it time that we said to ourselves, we've been fed? What about them? What about them? Okay. I'll, I'll drop that for now and go on. The harsh encounter. Now, I have to tell you that on my pages, I, I have a few extra notes that you won't find on yours, so you'll have to work along uh, on this. I remember a good number of years ago, a particular person made the comment to me, I just want to be pampered. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> I think a lot of Christians are exactly that way. I think we expect Jesus to pamper us. Well, I, I would have to say, with respect to this woman, I don't think you call that pampering, do you? 
I wouldn't call it pampering. Uh, and I'm not sure that we really deserve to be pampered. But I think that's the perspective from which we Americans approach this text is we look at this and we really want Jesus to be easy on us. Well, let me give you some other things. One of the things that's always bugged me is this statement, Jesus accepts us just as we are. I don't really believe that's true. Jesus accepts us just, or let's back it up a bit. God accepts us just as Jesus is. He didn't accept us as we are, folks. We stink. Our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. I don't call that acceptance. But uh, let me let that one slide for a minute and say, revise the statement. Jesus accepts us just as we are once we know what we are. He wants us to know how bad we are before we can really come to repentance and embrace what Jesus has done. Somebody brought up the prodigal son this morning. So let's talk about him first. Prodigal son learned who he was in the pig pen. Did he not? So that when he says, I'm going to go back to my father, he doesn't say, I'm going back to claim my privileges as a son. He goes back as one who has no standing with his father and he asks to be hired like a slave. That son knows what he is. The uh, woman at the well, Jesus talks to her about water. And then he says, go call your husband. Well, I don't really have a husband. Right on. That's right. You're not married. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, you've had a few others as well. Now, now we're ready to talk about the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus. And all I'm trying to say, friends, is it's harsh. It's harsh finding out what we are. That's a harsh reality. But friends, it is true. And it is the way in which we come to salvation. I was thinking about this even after the fact. Look at Ephesians for a moment, chapter 2. In other words, we come to this as though somehow Jesus is just really unduly harsh. But look what... Um, Look what Paul has to say to the uh, Ephesian believers. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Is that not what Jesus is saying to this woman? Is that not the reality that he is bringing her to? She has no standing. <laughs> but that's where grace comes. Grace comes when we understand what we are and what we deserve because of what we are. 
And Jesus is simply bringing her to a confession of that, as I understand our text. Our sin is a harsh reality. And the cross, my friend, is a harsh penalty. Think about the consequences for sin. That's a harsh reality. You know, when when, uh, it was being uh, talked about the patience of our Lord Jesus and justice, my mind turned to a text in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus says something that's pretty interesting. I need to pursue it further, but I'll let you think along with me. He says, Consequently, verse 31 of Matthew 23, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Uh, And then he says in verse 34, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. You know what that text says to me? When someone persists in their unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ, they don't pay it forward, friend. They buy it backward. They buy in to the rejection of men against God's provision from Genesis all the way to the present. That's what he says. These people who didn't live in those days are going to suffer in some way the consequences for the guilt of those people because they chose to identify with them rather than Christ. Scary thought. May I say, a harsh thought. I think that's what we're dealing with. You've got to see this in the light of its outcome. I was thinking about the analogy of childbirth. Man, my first time in that labor room, I heard women saying things to their husband I never dreamed of. <laughs> you beast! Get away from me! They'd say, and I think, whoa, what is this? That, those moments in the labor room, they are harsh moments, are they not? How different they are from the moment they bring that baby in and they place it in the mother's arms. Now, all of a sudden, all of the pain and the severity of that moment, those moments, those long moments, all of that is somehow worth it all. When you look at this text, friends, you can't just look at it in the sense of what does Jesus say to her at that moment. The question is, how does it end? And it ends with a woman who professes and practices her faith, who perseveres in clinging to Jesus only and who ends up the star of the show. The disciples are still duller than rocks. Peter's the rock, all right. He's got a rock head at this point. They don't get it when Jesus talks about bread. This woman gets it. She gets the subtleties of what Jesus is saying when he says she's a dog. By the way, it's a puppy dog, but the reality is, Somebody who had a a racial chip on their shoulder, they would be up and rolling at this point. But this is, this is our Lord's way of bringing her out. If she read this story, would she walk out of here in shame, my friend? Would she walk out of this room in shame? She would be a hero. 
And that's the way it ends. So don't look at harshness in terms of the moment. Look at it in terms of its result. And sometimes God has to get pretty tough with us to bring us to that point. And I believe he's done it there. Okay, I've gotten off my soapbox, I think. Oh, by the way, we also have to look at this in the light of the Old Testament. What would an Orthodox, fully devoted Jew have done with this Canaanite woman in the light of the Old Testament? Man, you think Jesus was harsh? <laughs> it was a lot worse than that. And one last point. You know, I hear over and over again the inference, if not the clear statement, that somehow Jews, because of their traditions and their practices and their past, have more intuitive insight into the purposes of God. Where do you see that? Where do you see that? Here, in our text. Here's a Canaanite. How far away can you get? She acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, the way I read it. She is the one who has faith. She gets what bread means. <laughs> but not the disciples. Um, Paul says that uh, the Jews have a veil over their eyes because of their rejection of Jesus. I don't think you can say that just because one has come up within those traditions that one is more predisposed to understand the truth. Sometimes it may be the opposite. And it took a dramatic experience for Paul to begin to see the light, and it took him years to connect those dots, I think, the way he should have. Jesus and the speechless man, speechless deaf man in verses 31 through 37. The only account of this is found here in Mark. Although it harmonizes pretty well with Matthew 15, 29 through 31, which follows on the, uh, the Canaanite woman's story there. It seems to me that what Mark has done is to take one incident and to focus the spotlight on that as opposed to Matthew looking at sort of the overall thing, which ends up they glorified the God of, uh, of Israel. But here it's talking about uh, one man. This text brings to mind Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. I think I'll save that for a moment. Uh, it is the text that our Lord refers to when John the Baptist asks the question, uh, do I have this right? Are you really the Messiah? Notice that it's others who brought this man to Jesus. Doesn't look like this man got there on his own. And it is they who speak for the speechless man, asking the Lord Jesus to give him a healing from his malady. It's also these guys who can't shut up. I, I, I don't know why, but you know, when I come to Acts chapter 3 and you see that guy who is laying there hoping for alms and silver and gold, have we none, but such as we have, you know, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. This guy is, I mean, he's not doing the moonwalk. Man, this guy is up and down. Don't you think? Trying out those legs, man, he probably looks like an acrobat. Wouldn't you think this guy who just got speech would really turn that old tongue loose? And yet, as I read the text, it's not he who's the one who's going out doing all the talking. It's the guys that brought him. In spite of the fact that Jesus has told them not to. Persistent, in a sense, a disobedience on their part. 
the, uh, the other thing I notice about this text is the way in which Jesus deals with this man is, is a way that is sensitive to his handicap. In other words, Jesus could have said to this guy, receive your hearing. But he's deaf. Now, you know, he'd obviously have to have received it in order to hear that. So what he does is he takes his fingers. It's kind of like a braille command to a blind man. He puts his fingers in the guy's ears. I mean, he doesn't have to hear what's going on. He knows what's going on, right? And then he spits, I take it, on his hand, and he touches that man's tongue. He has done symbolically what that man, in effect, couldn't deal with in normal ways. So Jesus has given him a handicapped version of a healing. And I think that's, to me, that's kind of neat. Why the sigh? I'm, I'm still working on that, and I'm not going to go very far because I'd like to understand what I'm saying before I say it, ideally. But I would say this. You see it several times. You see it several times in the Gospels. Uh, and I'm inclined to take it sort of like the weeping of our Lord Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And that is, can you imagine... In Philippians 2 terms, the king of glory coming out of the perfection of heaven, dwelling amongst men, and, and constantly, constantly face to face with the consequences of men's sin, which, I might add, are all going to fall upon him. Right? They're all going to fall upon him. Maybe that gives him good grounds for sighing. But he looks up into heaven, remember, and then uh, asks the, the father, in effect, that that man would be uh, have his mouth opened and his ears opened. Here's the, the last thing it says. They acknowledge he has done everything well. Isn't there a song about that? He doeth all things well? I wonder if we believe it. Well, maybe I should come back to that in a minute. How do we connect the dots? They're both Gentile healings, so it's still keeping this, this Gentile thing going. In both healings, in Mark, Jesus seeks privacy, but it turns out otherwise. Now, you might say, well, so what? Well, that leads me to point C. I get this strong deja vu. That's as much French as I ever learned. I, I, I dropped out college, didn't want any more, couldn't handle any more. But you get that, haven't I been here before feeling? When you read what goes on in Jesus' ministry with these Gentiles, doesn't it come across to you like, haven't I heard this before? Hasn't Jesus healed somebody and said, don't talk about it, but they did? Hasn't Jesus done all of these things that we're reading about? I mean, isn't this in a sense... And I want to be very careful. It's a replay, but it's not a rerun of what Jesus has done. Now, that's why you have the feeding of the, in my opinion, why you have the feeding of the 5,000, you have to have a feeding of the 4,000. Gentiles. Jewish, Gentile. Healing of people over here, 
Healing of people over here. Telling people to be silent over here doesn't work. Telling people over here to be silent doesn't work. And you say to yourself, wow, this sounds familiar. Right. That's the point. But, and I, I, I have to say this now, point D. Both miracles are far more than a cheap knockoff of Jewish ministry. This is not some, you know, pseudo purse that you buy from New York from some guy that's got his arm full of these things hanging off and he tells you it's one kind of person, it's another. It's not that at all. What you see in these miracles, I think, is actually added dimensions to what's happened in the Jewish ministry. So rather than being some kind of discounted miracle, they're actually value-added miracles. Take, for example, the exorcism. Where in his ministry to Jewish people did you ever see an exorcism long distance? I don't. Here's the first long-distance exorcism. Man, that's, that's, wouldn't you call that class A? Not class B, class A stuff. And then, when you look at the, the uh, deaf mute who's healed, again, what you say to yourself is, this isn't some second class miracle either. This is really pretty amazing. And Mark goes into a, a pretty good detail as to how it takes place. This is not just Jesus coming along and saying, you too, you too. Same for you as a, as a gay boy here. It isn't that at all. Jesus is giving to these people something that puts them on equal standing. And in fact, when you deal with the Syrophoenician woman, she actually comes out ahead. All of this, I believe, I'm in my connecting the dots mode again. All of this expects us to be reading it in the light of Isaiah 35. So look with me at that text. This is the text Jesus used when the question is, are you really the Messiah? And uh, you, you see Isaiah saying, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb, a dumb will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Here you have that miraculous work of Jesus that is foretold for Israel. And what do you know but what? Here it is, falling upon Gentiles. That, I think, is prominent in this. No second-class ministry to Gentiles. They are not second-class saints. They are included fully, as Paul says in Ephesians, into all that God has promised for his people. Remember Romans chapter 4? All those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. No second class standing. So, let's talk about some concluding thoughts. This is really all about the gospel, folks. And the gospel is all about the harsh reality that we are not so hot at all. In fact, we are repulsive to God in our sins. We have nothing in our hands to bring. 
And somehow God is going to bring that harsh reality upon us. It is a reality in our ego, in our smugness we do not want to hear. But we are despicable sinners in God's sight. Unclean, if you would, dogs. Are we not? We are dogs to God in the sense that we deserve nothing from Him. And that's the starting point. And that's why Jesus makes that point, I think, with this woman. She is not different from anybody else. She is just like everybody else that will enter the kingdom of God. This is another example, as Jesus has declared, of the principle to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, the Greek. And that's what you see Jesus declaring there. And do you not see in Mark the proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus to Jewish people? The rejection is already there. They've already determined to kill him. And now you begin to see the gospel going to Gentiles. The gospel isn't flattering to Jews or Gentiles, folks. It's not flattering because it's about our sin and about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place. It's all about faith in Jesus. So if you're here this morning, perhaps, and, and you have your religiosity, your church attendance, your Sunday school pins going up and down your sleeve, whatever it is you think you've got to offer God, you need to read this text like that Syrophoenician lady, because Jesus is saying, you're just like her, and so am I. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us from our sin and our filth. God loves to lose some arguments. I really want to play this one out a little bit further. But don't you, don't you get the feeling that, that in this thing where Jesus is, in a sense, seemingly playing hard to get, where it looks to us as though it's harsh, do we not know this is the sovereign God who knows precisely what he is about. And his purposes are what we read as being fulfilled. So, in a sense, Jesus is leading her down this path as though somehow he's not really predisposed to do this thing. But reality is... Her faith and persistence is what he's looking for and delights in. It's an argument he has purposed to lose. Now, go back to Exodus 32 through 34. And here's Moses. You know, here's Israel worshiping the golden calf, carrying on. God says to him, I'm wiping these guys out. I'm done with them. And Moses says, well, wait a minute, God. <laughs> you made a promise. And uh, you really got to keep that. And so you go through this whole thing, you know, God's saying, I'm not going with you. I'll send in my angel with you when you're going up there. I'm not going. It was an argument he loved to lose. It was an argument he planned to lose. Because in the process of that conversation, call it a debate if you would, in the process of that, he was bringing forth something that wouldn't be evident if it were too easy. He brought forth the best out of Moses, and that's what he was producing. And I have to tell you, folks, sometimes we've got arguments going on with God. In fact, if you read Psalms, there's a lot of arguments with God. Are there not? 
man, you see the psalmist, and he says, what are you doing, God? How come it's taking so long? And he's hollering at God and shaking his fist, carrying on. But God's going to win. God's going to win, but he's going to win in a way that lets us, in many instances, not all, have what we've purposed, what we've desired, what we've delighted in, what he's promised, but after our diligent pursuit. So that raises the question, what does that say to us about prayer? Well, when Jesus talks about persistence in prayer, isn't that what it's about? Sometimes we ask and we don't receive. Now, there are reasons, James says, for that. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things and and all of that. All of those things are true. But isn't it also true that sometimes our perseverance and our persistence in our prayers is the thing that God really likes to see because what it shows is the depth of our trust in Him. In spite of that moment, which then takes me to God doing all things well. You know, that's a great sentence to read. It's a tough reality to live. Look at your life. Look at your life. Are there not times in your life where you said to God, in essence, if not in reality, God, you're doing one lousy job. I mean, we really think that sometimes. God's messing up. That's what the psalmist was saying. The hardest thing in the world, in the midst of harsh and severe circumstances, is to cling to that reality. Jesus does all things, all things well. Only in him can we trust. Well, one last word that's not on your notes. The old evangelical shuffle and how to deal with sinners. Send them down the street to some other church, some other ministry. Send the messy ones away. You know, we really need to come to terms with it. You know, I think, and I'm one of those guys that beats on the dead horse, perhaps, or a living horse of seeker-friendly stuff. We cannot change the gospel in order to bring men in those doors. We cannot, we dare not. But my friends, some of the people who come in those doors who are looking for the hope that Jesus Christ alone offers are messy, dirty, noisy people. And the question is, are we saying, either by our words or our deeds, send them away? That was what the disciples were doing. And in every instance, Jesus overrode that decision. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the severity with which you sometimes deal with us in our sin because you are seeking to draw us to grace. May these truths be welcomed and heartwarming to those of us who are Gentiles and yet now are the sons and daughters of Abraham because of our trust in the Lord Jesus. May no one in the hearing of my voice leave this message without seriously considering and embracing the good news of the gospel. 
that salvation is available only through the Son of David, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. In his name we pray. Amen.